This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I don't know why, but as we were singing that earlier, I um, was flooded with memories of, um, of Dad. You know, the last message that he preached here uh, was in the middle of the pandemic. He was all bundled up, you know, had his mask on and wearing gloves. We didn't know anything back then about this whole thing, and so we were taking precautions the best that we need to do. And uh, he worked on that message for months. He wanted so bad to get back in the pulpit to minister the Word. And, you know, it's really hard when you can't see and when your body is constantly in pain. If I took a minute to describe to you what he dealt with, it, it would... It would blow you away and probably send you to the bathroom to hurl because it's disgusting. But um, every minute of every day in, in just so much pain. And, and it was so important for him to get back in the pulpit and to minister. And I just remember him doing that. And um, I think about that and I think, oh, that I could finish so well. I think about Miss Mary as she's laying in hospital bed and uh, cancer eating her brain, and all she can say is, thank you, Jesus, I love you. Thank you, Jesus, I love you. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Oh, that I could finish so well. Oh, that my children would finish so well. Oh, that each of you would finish so well. God is good to us, so very good to us, even, even in the toughest of times. I hope, I pray, I pray that if you learn nothing else from being a part of this body, that you walk away with that singular vision that God is so immeasurably good. In addition to being good, He is eternally and supremely sufficient. He told the Apostle Paul when Paul prayed to him and said, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh. He said, Paul, I'm not going to take it from you. I want you to know my grace is sufficient. It's good enough. Not only is it good enough, it's all you need. Amen. We're going back to Colossians this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with to chapter 1 of Colossians. We took a small detour over the holiday away from our journey through this book. And I want to take us back to this little letter that Paul wrote to the little church in Colossians. I have to admit that um, our, my approach has been to jump around a little bit. Started in chapter 3, then we went up to chapter 1, went back to the end in chapter 4, and now we're back to chapter 1 again. That's not usually, and I'm using the word usually, that's not usually the best way to approach a text, but it fit us for the season that we're in. And if the Lord in His wisdom should ever bring us back around to this book, more than likely we'll approach it with a more top-down 
kind of approach. It's not that um, other approaches are wicked or bad. They're not, obviously. I mean, we're, we're working through Colossians in a, a bit of out-of-order kind of way. We're certainly doing it not in the way it's presented. We're, we've jumped around a little bit. And I know that last week I talked to you about the importance of expository preaching and, and what that means, you know, going, working through a text verse by verse. I don't want you to come away from that message last week thinking that that is the only valid way to preach or to approach the Scriptures. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time and a season for everything, and that is certainly true with how we approach the Scripture. There are times and seasons for different approaches. Uh, to be honest, some preachers are more gifted at one approach than at the others, but there are times and there are seasons. And so I, I do believe very strongly, though, that, that for a church and a congregation to be a healthy body, that we need a steady diet of working and laboring and rejoicing and praying through large passages of Scripture. Because when we do it that way, then when we are puffed up, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean when we're inflated, when, we are, when our souls are inflated, our joy is increased by the preaching, when our, when our souls sing because of the preaching, when our, our spirits are encouraged because of the preaching, and we get excited about what is being preached, and our spirits swell, and we get puffed up, when we approach the text in a methodical way and we have a steady diet that is uh, working through a text, what we're doing is we're, we're building a foundation and a strong structure to support the expansion of our joy, to support the expansion of our faith, to support the expansion of our excitement and our rejoicing in the Lord. If I decided to build a large arena... I want to house as many people with as much space as possible in this building. And I go to my drawings and I start drawing out and sketching out plans. Well, that square footage is not enough. I need it bigger. Well, that's not enough. I want it bigger. I want as much space as possible. At some point, I'm going to have to add some structure. I'm going to have to expand and deepen the foundation. I'm going to have to put up some buttresses. Because if I don't do that and I build the building, it'll fall under its own weight. So we got to have structure. You need good, solid foundation. You need bones to wrap that, that joy around. You need bones to wrap that faith around, right? So that's why I think it is good for us to approach the text in a certain way. It's not the only way to do it, certainly not. But I think it should be our, our main diet. And I, just, I don't want you to come away from last week saying that we should never do it any other way. I, just, that's my, I believe that that is our main focus, Enough of that. We want to be puffed up, and we want to be built up, not one or the other. So in Colossians, there's a passage that I want us to focus on this morning, and I want to draw out some things. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because I, I believe it reinforces some of the things that we've already studied in previous weeks. And two, because it, I think it sets us up very nicely for... For where I believe the Lord is, is taking us in, in the coming weeks, if, if the Lord wills. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Paul's prayer in chapter 1 for this little church in this little town of Coloss. 
In chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, he tells them about his prayers for them. Let's go ahead and read it because I think it's good for us to, it's good for us to read it. It's a good prayer. It's good for us to hear it. And I also want it fresh on our minds. So beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says, So from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now that's a a big prayer for supernatural things. Paul prays that we would walk in a manner Worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to the Lord. Yet, Paul teaches elsewhere that there is none righteous, no, not one. He's quoting the Old Testament there. He teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who are fully pleasing to the Lord. In fact, one of the central questions in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, John's Apocalypse, is who is worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And of course, Jesus is the answer to that question. But that is one of the central questions in the book. Is there anyone worthy? Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And yet, if you read Romans, Paul teaches us that the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot understand God. Indeed, it cannot follow God's will. It cannot know the law. Paul asks the Lord, he asks God that, that we would bear fruit in every good work. But in chapter 2 of this very letter, as well as in other places of Paul's writings, he teaches that we are dead in our trespasses. Dead things do not produce fruit. He prays that we would be strengthened with all power and all endurance and all patience with joy, that, that we would be thankful to God. And yet in Romans 1, he teaches that even though men knew God... They did not honor him or give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's why I say this is a great big prayer for supernatural things because everything that Paul prays for us in those three verses is contrary to the natural state of man. We could even say that everything that Paul asks the Lord for us on our behalf is outside of the natural ability of man to achieve, even if we were to set our minds to do it. For example, I could purpose in my heart that I want to be fully pleasing to God. I want to do things that will make God happy with me. I want to do all the right things. So I, I read the Bible, and I, I give to the poor, and I sacrifice for others. I do all the righteous works that I can think about doing. Not one of them 
not all of them, either singularly or cumulatively, is sufficient to save me. Not one of them or all of them is sufficient to make me righteous. None of that is sufficient to make me pleasing before God. Again, the Bible teaches that all of our righteousness, all of my righteousness, the things that I do in my own flesh are as filthy rags to God. Whether I do them good things or bad things, I give to the poor, have my body to be burned, I sacrifice, whatever, my righteousness on my own right is filthy rags. So even if I set my mind to do it, in my own strength, in my own will, I can't do it. I fall short. I think Paul is aware of these challenges as he prays because he builds for us the basis for this prayer in the following verses. I know that we quickly ran through these few verses a few weeks ago. I want to spend time here this morning drawing out the connection between the the great proclamation about Christ and the problems that it solves in the prayer that Paul prays for us. Let's begin reading in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So some problems. We've, we've looked at some problems. Paul, first one, Paul prays that, that we would walk in a manner worthy, that's the point of his prayer, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. But we are all sinners, incapable of pleasing God. We are incapable of doing this in our own strength, so we need a solution. And we find it in what we just read in verse 22. He, is, he has delivered us, excuse me, verse 12. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The problem is the reality of our own sinfulness. The reality of our own lawlessness. We don't think about the wrath of God the way we ought to. We are lawless creatures, sinful creatures, who incur the wrath of God, not the pleasure of God. 
All we want to do is focus on the kindness of God and the mercy of God. And don't get me wrong, those are great. And God wants us to emphasize those. But without the wrath of God, there is no justice. There is no righteousness. Without the wrath of God, the cross is not good news. It is just great abuse. The good news is that the wrath of God, the anger of God, was satisfied in the Son of God at the cross so that whoever believes in Him, that's Jesus, should not perish under God's righteous judgment, which is His wrath, but should have everlasting life. That should sound familiar to most of you. We have everlasting life. We have a shared inheritance with the Son, Jesus Christ. The solution to our problem of pleasing God is that the lawmaker became for us the law keeper and took upon himself the judgment of the lawbreaker so that for us he might be the law fulfiller and that in him we might have the reward of the law keeper. Redemption and forgiveness to eternal life. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so, Paul shows us the solution. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Jesus has done this for us. And He has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. So that we can please God. We can be reconciled and made right with God. Second problem, he prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But our minds are hostile Mm -hmm. to God. Mm -hmm. The natural mind of man that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot follow his law. That's Romans 8. So Paul, he prays and he says, God, I I pray that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will and with spiritual wisdom and understanding, and we cannot achieve that on our own. That's a problem. Verse 21, he gives us a solution. He says that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. Now this is remarkable to me. In Jesus Christ, we know, we are taught, That God has reconciled us. Our hostile minds are reconciled. Our evil deeds are reconciled in Jesus Christ. This means that that we are made right. Our mind is set right. Our deeds are set right. Our will is set right. That is done. We are made right. Our hearts and minds are set right with Christ. He did it. And that right setting of the mind and the right putting of the deeds is conditioned on not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Meaning that the solution to our problem of hostility towards God 
our wicked, lawless mind towards God, is to hope in Christ. So hope, to put a definition to it, is a trusted expectation. A trusted expectation. So that it's not just I expect this might happen, but I trust that this is, the, this is my trusted expectation. Amen. I have assurance there. There's a, a certainty about this hope. We have a trusted expectation in the sufficiency of Jesus' righteousness, that His righteousness and His promise is sufficient to cover our sin. His sacrifice is sufficient to cover our sin. And in that hope, our minds and deeds are reconciled toward God. So what does that mean? I take it to mean that Jesus Christ offers us a solution to our problem. The the hostile minds that we have, He offers us a solution to that. Not only that He offers us a solution, says, here, here's a way out, but that He says, I am the way. He is the solution. I've said this before, it is somewhat difficult, at least I find it somewhat difficult, to carry Jesus into sin with me. It's not impossible, because the mind of man, the heart of man is desperately wicked. And deceitful above all things. But it is difficult to carry Jesus Christ into willful sin with me. So keeping Him, the hope of the gospel that He gives in front of our minds is a shield and a bulwark against the hostility that we naturally have toward God. Paul says, in my flesh, I don't want to do anything good. There's nothing good. But keeping my eyes on Christ, my hope in Christ, my thoughts on Christ-centeredness is a bulwark and a shield against sinfulness. That's why I think, and that's why I harp on it, and even in my, my personal life, that's why I think it is so important to have some kind of routine in your life that honors God daily. It puts Him first daily. Whether it's starting your day with prayer or Bible reading or or some appointment that you have throughout the day at some time in the day to spend time with Him in His Word and in prayer. I know from... I don't think Siri can help me here. I, I know from personal experience and from the shared experiences of others who have shared this with me that... It is so much easier to be about the Father's business and to stand firm against the wiles of the devil, to stand firm against temptation when I start my day with prayer and study. When I miss my appointment, when I miss it, it's a different story. It is noticeably harder because the Bible says that they, they endured by washing with, of, with water of the Word. And so if I'm not continually bathing in the water of the Word, I, I'm, I'm really doing a detriment to my ability to endure. I'm not helping myself at all. So my solution that Paul offers once again is, is Christ. Do not stray from the hope 
of the gospel. Set your sights on him. Keep him front and center in your mind. Our third challenge is Paul in Paul's prayer. It, it comes from the first one. Paul wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he describes what that looks like. We talked about that uh, some, some weeks ago. But namely, he says that it is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Now that's a mouthful. That's a lot of stuff right there that, make, that, that goes into uh, being fully pleasing to the Lord. Well, let's, let's break it down. Though. Let's work in the order that he presented it. And there, there's two main things that come up front. Bearing fruit and, and uh, increasing in the knowledge of God. Everything else sort of is a fruit of or a scaffold for that. The problem is that if we take this in order, the first thing that comes in the list is, is that we are to bear the fruit of every good work. And our problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that we are all dead in our trespasses. That's Ephesians 2. And the dead don't produce fruit. So Paul even says as much in verse 21, which we've looked at already. He says that we were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Not good ones, evil ones. We, we can't bear good fruit because of our spiritual deadness and our hostility to God. But thanks be to God, He made a way in Christ. Amen. Look at verse 15. God does not... He's, Paul says that, that Jesus, it's interesting, there's a, there's a parallel he draws here. In verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, creation is life. God did not create dead things. He said, let there be life, and, and there was life. So I, I don't want you to come away from this thinking that Jesus was created, though. He is the uncreated, eternally begotten Son the very next verse, it says that it was by Jesus that all things were created. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, you're going to see that Jesus is at work in creation. Amen. The Bible says that God spoke and it was. Amen. Right? We see, we see the whole trinity in creation. The, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. God spoke. The Father spoke and it was. John 1, which we read this morning, gives us some Beautiful clarity into what's going on there. In the beginning was the... We were all created by the, the Word. And the Word became flesh. By the Word of God, by Jesus, all things were created. He is the Word of life, and in Him we have life. Look at verse 18. We have a, a contrast now. He's the firstborn from, of all creation, and now we see that Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Not only is he life to us, he is the conqueror of death for us. Death does not give birth, and yet Jesus is the firstborn from death. The Bible tells us from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain, and yet He lives. Only in Christ are the dead given new life. Only in Christ can these dry bones walk again. Amen. Only in Christ can we bear the fruit of the living. 
There is assurance here. Paul says that all of this is so that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. That means he is first in order and absolute in superiority, even over death. So praise God that he has caused these old dry bones to live again. (laughs) With a shout and a praise, Jesus is my all in all. Finally, our, our fourth problem, and again, in the order that Paul presents it, it comes from that same, same verse, we are to bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. I said this earlier, simple knowledge is not sufficient. Let's read it in Romans 12, Romans 12, 1. It says, for although they knew God, Romans, back it up, Romans 1, 21, I don't know where I got 12. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. For they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the problem that they had was that they knew but did not honor They did not elevate, they did not exalt, they did not lift up, they did not praise, they did not glorify, they did not thank, they did not honor God as God. They knew, but they did not give thanks to Him, they did not honor Him. So back in Colossians, Paul tells us in verse 17 that Jesus is before all things, and He holds all things together. That's a reason to honor Him. By Him, everything is held together. He is the head of the body, the church. That's a reason to honor. The head is a position of authority and a position of great honor. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. He is fully God and fully man. The ultimate reason to honor Him. Christ is God. And that's not just knowledge. That's revelation. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter answered, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus came back with him, praising him and saying, this is great. You're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This was revealed to you by the Father. This is revelation. Jesus is God. Certainly Worthy to be honored. Paul is painting us a picture and he's giving us reasons. He's putting scaffolding, building a structure for us to pin honor and glory and thanks and gratitude to God because he's worthy of it all. It's not sufficient just to know things about God. We must see him revealed through the Son. We must honor Him as God through the Son because it is through the Son that He has reconciled all things to Himself. He has made us right with Him through the Son. Back to our first problem, we are all sinners. Well, guess what? Jesus solves that. He came to make it right. God, the lawmaker, came to make lawbreakers, lawkeepers through the Son. Once again, Jesus Christ is our answer. His sufficiency does not know any bounds. Now I know that sometimes it can sound like a bit of a cliche, 
but I have found that all of my answers to life's most difficult problems, the most strenuous trials that I face are found in Christ. That's not, I'm not, that's not platitudes, that's not hyperbole, I mean it. The, when, I, when I think back on my life and the most difficult problems that I faced are not the ones where I couldn't figure out how to make a, you know, this program work with that program or how to solve this issue because that's what I do, that's, I do computers, how to solve this. Those weren't the issues. The issues weren't, oh my goodness, we've got a leaky roof, how do I fix that? The issues weren't uh, the car is dripping oil, and I don't know the first thing about an oil change. That, that wasn't the problem. The issues are the issues of life. Amen. The real problems are the problems that come up with it are matters of faith and conscience. Amen. What do I do? Well, I've got a brother who's walking in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord, and I'm worried if I say something to him, he ain't gonna, he's not going to hear from me. He's only going to be offended. I don't, I don't want to lose my brother. I don't want to offend my brother in Christ, but what do I do? Problems that come up in life, big problems. What do I do when I've got a past that is so riddled with, with problems, with sin? You know, I, I, Paul said, I'm chief among sinners. Well, guess what, Paul? I'd like to give you a run for your money. How do I walk into a church and knowing that, that I've, I've got all this stuff on my, on my resume? How do I walk into a church and, and tattoos on my face and expect that they're going to love me? Do, do you know why? Because Jesus is sufficient. He's sufficient. And the same muck and mire that he brought me out of, he bring you out of. He's sufficient in all things. He's sufficient to bring the dead back to life. He's sufficient to cause the wicked to rejoice in him. He is sufficient to reconcile my hatred and my anger to him. He is sufficient to loose me from the curse of the law. In all things, Christ is sufficient. That's why Paul says rejoice. And again I say rejoice. We have a Jesus that is like no other. In all things, Christ is sufficient. I want to give you a little preview as to where we're going if the Lord is willing. We read it this morning. And I'll close with this. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom He has also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the... Let me stop there. I'm going to get into my material for next time. But the, the exact imprint of his nature. 
the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God. God is described as the unseen God in the Bible. He's invisible, the invisible God. And yet, he puts forth Christ to be seen. Okay. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior, and that word is important, to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what, what is on the docket? What I have planned for us, uh, we'll either begin next week or, or shortly after that, is a journey through Hebrews. Jesus is greater. He is the greater word. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater sacrifice. He is the greater high priest. Jesus is greater. Now, Hebrews is 13 chapters long. There's a lot in Hebrews. It may be the better part of a year before we get through it. <laughs> so that's where I think we're headed. And that's why I think, why well, I went to back to Colossians this morning, because I'm not quite ready to go there yet, but I think it sets us up very nicely for where we're going. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is superior. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Christ, thanking you that Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. He is sufficient for everything that, that, that we have need of. Lord, you are great to us. We give you glory for that. Father, I pray that as the weeks and months come and we begin working through the letter to the Hebrews, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the superiority of Christ, the greater nature of Christ, the finality of Christ, that he is all truly in all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.